Amen. Hey, this morning we are continuing our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so if you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the back of the pew rack in front of you. If you don't own one, we'd be happy for you to take that home with you. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find at the very front of that a table of contents. This is going to point you to where the books can be found, and then the large numbers are going to be chapters, and the small numbers are going to be verses. This morning, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. Let me read the passage for us, invite you to read along with me, and then we will walk through. The Apostle Paul writes, and he says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and all power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in in all. Over the last two and a half days, I had an opportunity to go to a conference over in Dallas, and the subject of this conference and, and the, the, the matters addressed by all those addressing was the issue of, of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. And so victim after victim trotted out and, and, and talked about what their experiences were and what it was like for many of them to suffer at the hands of a church, to suffer at the hands of a pastor, to suffer at the hands of their own father, to suffer at the hands of a family member. And this stunning thing happened that over and over again, as person after person shared that, I began to hear, as I was preparing for this and planning for this, I began to hear that, that many of them, the hope they pointed to wasn't a hope for justice at the hand of their abuser. The hope that many of them pointed to wasn't that the church would finally get it right, that things would finally be put in order, that children would finally be safe, but the hope that many of them pointed to was a hope in the resurrection. Suffering terrifically at the hands of a myriad of abusers what they chose to find hope in was the resurrection i hope that today that as we have opportunity to look at the resurrection that you and i might find an inkling of the hope that they have discovered that in christ the resurrection that we have a hope that is unaffected that is unassailable that lasts for all eternity. There's a hope for today and a hope for the future. It's interesting that as Paul begins in verse 20, what he's offering is a counteract to what he said uh, in the previous section. You'll remember that if you're here last week or you've read 1 Corinthians 15 recently, that Paul begins and he talks about the, the historical reality of the resurrection, that these things really happen, these things are really true. And then he talks about the logical outflow, that if these things aren't true, that if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then, then where are we? 
In essence, he says, look, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, your faith is in vain. All preaching is a waste of time. We might as well sit around and and talk about the Cowboys. We might as well sit around and talk about college football yesterday. If all of these things aren't true, then this is just a complete and utter waste of time. If Christ didn't Uh, wasn't raised from the dead, then you're still in your sins, then your faith is futile, then we're all just to be pitied, which is how he ended it there in verse 19. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished, verse 18. If we in Christ have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. And so he writes to this church in Corinth that's really struggling with the reality of, is the resurrection real, and is there a hope for me for a personal resurrection? And to these groups, he enters into verse 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And so you have a sense that as they hear these things, as they were reading these things, as they were being read to them, that they were locked in tension at the possibility that these things aren't true. So they begin to think, all this suffering has been pointless. All this difficulty has been pointless. All the suffering of my family has been pointless. The hours we've spent together in studying have been pointless. All of my family is dead and in the grave and they're not leaving. But then Paul removes from them this tension and tells them, but in fact Christ has been gloriously raised from the dead. And look at what he writes about it. He says this resurrection of Christ from the dead, he describes it this way. He says, it is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And if you're to read through the Old Testament, you're to discover time and again this discussion of what the first fruits are and how these things function. In Leviticus, we read that, that when they would go out and they would harvest their crops, all right? And so you put the seed in the ground and you've worked the seed and you've waited on the rain and, and finally it's sprouting and it's growing and it's grown to maturity and you go out there and you begin to harvest this crop. And as you're harvesting this crop, you, you wrap it and you put it in a bundle and you have no right understanding of, are these things going to continue to be? And so you're putting full faith and confidence in God and so you gather the first a harvest there, and you take that up to the temple, and you offer it as a blessing to the Lord. And in essence, you're saying, I put my full faith and confidence in you that there is more to come, that this first evidence of your faithfulness to me, of your goodness to me, will not know an end. It will continue. And so the first fruit offering they took in there was a terrific display of trust to God and relied upon the faithfulness of God to them. And this is what he said Christ's resurrection is. Jesus, when he is resurrected, he is not the first man to come back from the dead. We see this in the Old Testament. We see Jesus raised Lazarus and others from the dead, but he is the first one to be raised from the dead, never to die again. So Jesus' resurrection from the dead is distinctly different from any other person who has ever been raised at this point. And in Jesus' resurrection, all Christians, all those who buy and believe in him, have an opportunity to believe that the faithfulness of God we visited upon them as well. Jesus, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. In Jesus' resurrection, you and I have hope. Not that Jesus just simply overcame sin and death, but that you and I too will have a, will have a resurrection like his, a resurrection, a rebirth, a renewing, a life eternal after this lived always forever in the presence of God, enjoying his company, enjoying his goodness, and worshiping him in a full display of his brilliance and glory. So Paul goes on and he talks about it. Look what he says in 21 and 22. 
He says, for by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Paul wants us to know why this is so incredibly important to us. Notice that he talks about the realities of two men. He says, on the one hand, you've got this one guy, and and on the basis of him, death has entered in. So he's talking about creation. He says, on the other hand, you have this other guy, and on the basis of him, there's a resurrection from the dead. And so he talks about uh, this idea of creation. That, that in God's creation of Adam, recorded in Genesis 1 on the sixth day, that he created him to exercise dominion, that he, ex- he, he created him to extend dynasty, that he and Eve were to rule over a perfect creation. And in the midst of this perfect creation, God created a good tree, but this good tree was fully off limits to Adam. Because on the day that he would eat of it, he would come to a knowledge of good and evil and forever be marred and separated from God. And if you've read through the account of creation, if you've read through the account of Adam's existence there in this garden, that you'll know that Adam took of the fruit, that he ate of it, and then in eating of it, all of humanity from there on after was tainted by sin and removed from the garden and removed from the unmediated presence of God. But then we see in the goodness of God that he has an answer, a direct answer, speaking immediately and promptly to the curse of sin visited upon humanity. He says, just as death came by a man, so too the resurrection of the dead would come by a man. But God, looking down on creation, marred and stuck in this cycle of sin, that God, looking down, visited us in his goodness by sending his son Jesus in fully vulnerable human form. And this display that Matthew and and the other gospel writers talk about in the incarnation, that God himself took on flesh and came and dwelt fully man, fully God. So on the one man, we receive sin and death, and on the other man, we receive the possibility of life, forgiveness, and a resurrection. Well, Paul gives a name to each of these in 22. He says, for as Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Romans 5 In verse 12, Paul talks about this death that we experience in Adam. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Man, if you are alive today, if you're not, this is a really interesting sermon. I'd love to talk to you about how you know what's going on right now. But if you're in the hearing of this, know that that you are in this line of Adam that no person that no person is kept from receiving the stain of sin. And it's on the basis of having received this sin and on the basis of having engaged in this sin that you and I all either are or were firmly separated from the love of God. On the basis of sin, personal sin, that we were separated from the love of God. And Paul goes on, he says, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And here we see this terrific distinction. Paul speaks of of kind of how these things work and how these things operate. Just previously in chapter 5 and verse 6 in the book of Romans, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
And so it's not that God came in and said, look, your sin's not such a big deal that it really doesn't matter, that I'm just going to kind of get rid of these things for you abstractly, that he took upon himself the penalty and the punishment for our sins, which is what he describes in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. He's urging them, and he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, greedily held on to. But he emptied himself. Jesus divested of himself all things that were by virtue of the fact that he is God, his. He emptied himself, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You were born in the likeness of sin as you were born in Adam. And over the course of your life, sin has reigned in your body. And it's reigned in your relationships, and it's, it's reigned in your experience. And each week we see it in the news, and each week we experience it in our lives, and each week we give people an opportunity to experience it from us to them. And Jesus' death serves as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, those those visited upon us and those we visit upon others. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. To the glory of the Father. We see this wonderful thing, and in this we see this division of all of humanity. We see the terrific possibility of forgiveness and redemption in Christ But still we see that all of us, outside of the forgiveness extended to us by Jesus, remain in Adam. We remain in our sin. We remain in our sin, awaiting our death and awaiting a Christless future, forever separated by the love of God. Jesus graciously inviting us to believe not just the the, the mental ascent that says, yes, the resurrection is true and it seems to be true historically, but to buy in and believe in the resurrection personally and say, I want you to come and to reside within me. I want you to forgive me of my sins. In humility, I recognize that I can't can't be the authority, that I can't be the one who is right, that you alone who are right, would you come to forgive me? Would you come so that I might receive grace and forgiveness? Paul goes on in this. He's talking about Christ, the first fruits, and all those who would be born and made alive at his coming. He says, But each in his order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, Jesus, long before his crucifixion, speaking in John chapter 5, was addressing, in some sense, the resurrection. What is it going to be like? How are these things going to function? In John 5 26 through 29. He says, for as the Father has life in him, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And that he has given to him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear his voice. Jesus says, look, everyone who is dead at some point will hear my voice cry out. And they're going to come out, Those who have done good to a resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment on the basis, not of my personal good, but on the basis of the good thing done by Jesus, I'm able to have resurrection to life and life eternal. 
And the Bible plainly teaches us over and over and over again that if we rest, that if we trust on the basis of the good thing we've done or merely the good thing that we have believed, as if it's some abstract notion that we just believe it and we're we're able to answer correctly on a test, that on the basis of these things abstractly and remotely, that all of us will be visited upon judgment as the resurrection that all will be resurrected. One group will be resurrected to life in Christ and the other group will be resurrected to just judgment. And this is what he teaches. But look what he says here. That Jesus' first fruits gives for us a possibility of a future resurrection if we believe and follow in him. But what is Jesus doing in the middle? We know that he's coming. We know that in verse 24 it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the Father. And so in terms of history, Paul is painting it in just two short statements. He says, where you exist now, you exist in a reality awaiting the physical bodily return of Jesus. And at that physical bodily return of Jesus, all will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to judgment. Some will be resurrected to eternal life with God the Father. And this is how this is going to operate. And and then after that, Jesus will take all of these things and he will extend them to the Father as an offering to him. In essence saying, here all these things have been done for you that you might receive glory and honor. But in the meantime, in the meantime, in essence from his ascension until now, this is what he's doing. He says he's destroying every rule and every authority and every power. You know, when we think on this, and we contemplate this, and we begin to think of of kind of what these things look like, and what does it mean for every rule and every authority and every power, I I think it's most readily just kind of comes to us that we think of these things as being something kind of foreign, evil, and remote. Foreign, evil, and remote. This is kind of first-level thinking, foreign, evil, and remote. Large political structures that we look at and say this is demonic or this is evil and and this needs to be torn down. And Jesus is working and he is tearing these things down. Vile empires built on manipulating, built on abusing, built on using the most vulnerable in our society and of a global society. So we think of entities, we think of, of sex trafficking, we think of abortion. Some of us today, if you're to think of, of the things that populate your mind when you think of God's destroying every rule and every authority and every power, you think, man, he's talking about Democrats. You laugh, but some of you, like reading your social posts, this is exactly what you think about. Like the last election, when it was going through, you were like, he's destroying Joe Biden. He's destroying Obama. He's he's destroying these. And so you have personalized your understanding of what this looks like, and you have visited upon someone made in the image of the likeness of God. I think these things are in some sense useful because we recognize that it is good that our God is destroying things that are opposed to the gospel, and he's using us to do this. He's using us to bring truth and light and healing to those who desperately need it. He's using us to overcome instances of evil. But you know what else he's doing? I mean, he's at work in your heart. He's at work in your heart in every instance, in every opportunity where every rule or authority or power is militating and pushing back against him. He is systematically moving to deconstruct this. 
God looking at your heart, he sees your self-sufficient goodness, and he's moving to deconstruct it and to destroy it. And he sees us sitting in our pride and in our arrogance and, 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 and saying and communicating, we have this all worked out. We only needed you for salvation. We don't need you in any sense for life transformation. We don't need to be used by you in any sense to be impactful in our community. We are content. And he's moving through and he's systematically destroying that. And he's pulling the sin of self-sufficiency out of your heart. And he looks at you who would look at your neighbor and say, I wish their good thing was my good thing. And he's systematically pulling jealousy out of your heart. And he's systematically pulling pride out of your heart. This, that I'm better than someone else. That, that, that I deserve this. That I deserve better. And he's systematically removing this from your heart. He's systematically removing bitterness from your heart that you have been betrayed, that you have been lied to, that you are angry, that you want to be even. He's removing that from your heart. I'm so thankful that we serve a God who isn't just working in those we vilify as evil. But he's working on the insidious evilness found within us. And he's not finished with us. And everything like this, every obstacle God removes from your heart is so that you might be more useful engaging someone else. He's doing it all so that he might receive glory and honor. And he's doing it all so that you might be able to be impactful in the lives of those who otherwise would be raised to a judgment. Man, he wants to have us be useful and usable in our community. He wants to have us be useful and usable in our places of employment. He wants to have us be useful and usable in our homes. Will we be those people? Or do we merely lay our heads to sleep at night and say, God, would you remove every power and every rule and every authority and do that over there? Don't touch this in here. Friends, I don't think God will honor that prayer unless you allow him to first work within you. God, would you make your rule established in my heart so that I might be an agent to establish your rule elsewhere? The text tells us that he must reign. Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Psalm 110 gives us this beautiful picture and it says this is what God the Father is doing. He's taking all these uh, rulers and all these authorities and he's bringing them all and putting them underneath, making them a footstool for his chosen one, making, him, making them a footstool for Jesus. Now this is the picture that he's working with, okay? So within the Old Testament, this understanding that, that a king would go out and he begins to recognize those who are set against him. And so he brings all those uh, top generals, he brings all those authorities in that were formally operating against him. And it's not simply enough to dispatch them, but he brings them in and he makes them, and, and they're dispatching a public spectacle. And so laying them upon the ground, he takes his foot and he puts it upon their throat to display his power, to display his majesty. And this is what he said God is doing to all those things that stand against his rightful ruler and authority, that stand against Jesus. He's bringing all these things in submission to himself. He's displaying his power by bringing them low. This is what he's doing in the meantime. This is what he's engaged in. And then he tells us, he says, listen, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
Death is something that visits each one of us over the course of our lives and is something that awaits all of us at the end of our lives. And so we can think of, of loved ones that, we, that we've lost. We can watch the news and, and read of, of people's lives being taken too soon. We can see gross injustice where we see good people come to an untimely end. Or, and, and so death is this constant reality over the course of our lives and over the course of our existence. But Jesus, this first fruit, When Jesus is resurrected from the dead, this is in essence what is happening. Jesus goes into the grave and all of the demonic horde horde cry out, yes, we've done it, we have established victory. And then he rises from the dead and what they think is, oh, snap. (laughs) Did not see that coming. Totally caught me off guard in some sense. In the resurrection of Jesus, we see that death is given a stop clock. We see the, 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 the hours on this clock and the hours passing through, the, the, the sand passing through the hourglass of time are beginning to dwindle and beginning to de- decrease as the days of death's reign are coming to an end. And in this, the Christian is given hope. In this, the Christian is given hope that when Jesus is raised from the dead, we are told and we are displayed and we are shown that death is coming to an end, that sickness is coming to an end. And this is why the wonderful thing caught up here in this translation is you could, all, you could also render it, and the last enemy being destroyed is death. Jesus is in the midst of destroying death He's bringing it to an end, and he has accomplished this by once and for all overcoming death. And he invites us to enjoy, to live in this hope-filled reality that death for us is not the end. That what is awaiting the Christian is a hope-filled, joy-filled, forever eternity spent in the good presence of a righteous Father. Amen? Jesus is going about and he's putting all these things under subjection. The Bible clearly tells us again in verse 27, God has put all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plainly accepted, except him who put all things in subjection underneath him. And this points to the, 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 the subjection that Jesus himself allows himself to be placed under the Father. Functional subordination. That Jesus, although he is the same inequality with God. He is very God, allows himself to function in a subordinate role to the Father. And at the end of all things, he brings himself up underneath the Father, submitting himself to the Father and offering himself once again. Death is no more. Fear is no more. All these realities that exist that push back against God, all those things externally and all those things within my heart and your heart. Jesus is bringing all these things to end. He's bringing all of these things to ruin and he is establishing the righteous, true reign of the Father forevermore. Peter writes about it this way. He writes about it this way, and, and what does this reality look like, and, 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 and how then should we understand the hope that we have in 1 Peter 1, 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
I don't know what your week has looked like. I don't know what your life has looked like up until this point if you're a Christian. Being a Christian, you still experience terrific difficulty. Maybe you've suffered abuse at the hands of somebody you love. Maybe just life itself has been an abuse to you. And so you think upon hope as a Christian, and you think, this hope seems decidedly empty. It seems not to in any way impact, or it seems to not in any way diminish the rapid nature of the difficulties I face. It seems not in, in, in any way to be altering the existence I'm going through. So what in the world good is this hope? If the way you've been trained to look at life is making the most of today or making the most for tomorrow or making the most of this life. Can I tell you honestly that you're going to be sadly disappointed? The hope available to you found in the gospel is a hope that overcomes sadness, but it's not a hope that makes you immune to sadness. Bible tells us plainly that to be a Christian is to still experience difficulty. But in the midst of experiencing difficulty, to be able to go through this, recognizing that hope is on the far side of this experience and that the visitation of Jesus is on the far side of this life. That's where our hope rests. This is why Peter is able to describe our hope in the resurrection and say that it is undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you because our hope isn't for a better existence now. Our hope is based upon the permanence of a better existence with the Father. Amen? And listen, listen. In the midst of this hope, in the midst of this hope, we have the, the privilege and responsibility to go to those who are being overcome by terrific hardship and doubt. I mean, this week, uh, most of our Facebook feeds and our news, whether you're on CNN, Fox News, or whatever, repeatedly we've seen on display the hope found in the gospel from this brother in Christ who is slain to the police officer who was sentenced to the judge who gave him a Bible. We've seen the righteous hope of the gospel extended to one who many of us would say did not deserve it. This is what you personally have an opportunity to do. To step into the middle of somebody's hurt, to step, in, step into the middle of somebody's discomfort, to step into the middle of these things and show them the hope eternal that rests in the gospel. Because the way that Jesus describes it here, every single person will be resurrected. Some, according to John 5, will be resurrected to judgment, and some will be resurrected to life. And what changes their eternal destination is how they respond to the resurrection of Jesus. And some of us, as we sit in here and as we listen to this, and you know for a matter of fact that you have responded positively to the gospel, you have submitted yourself, and you've in essence cried out, Lord Jesus, save me. But there are still others that when you look at the reality of your life, you're either resting upon the fact that this isn't true or resting on your goodness in God's mercy. But, but the Bible calls us to a response of the goodness found in Jesus in his sacrifice and in belief of his resurrection. And Jesus calls and he says, come to know me. Come to be forgiven. There is a hope. 
There's a hope that's distinctly Christian because there's a hope that distinctly rests in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, you've given us opportunity for great hope in that and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God, I pray for the Christian in here right now. They are overcome with sadness, with grief, with disappointment. God, would you help them to be being surrounded by their brothers and sisters in Christ, helping them to bear up underneath this difficulty, to have their hope founded solely in the resurrection. In Jesus who has come, who has taken on the penalty and the punishment for their sins. In Jesus who says, I have a place for you. I'm waiting for you. And I'll take you unto myself. And Father, I want to pray for those who have not yet responded to your gospel. God, that you would help them to see the futility of this life outside the hope of the resurrection. The vanity of this life outside the hope of the resurrection that they would respond to your mercy and grace and your invitation to come and to know you, to be forgiven of their sins. Father, we submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.